Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with breaking news in our law and justice lead. A federal judge has just paused Donald Trump's 2020 election interference case, which could lead to his March 2024 trial being delayed. Judge Tanya Chutkin says she is waiting for the U.S. Supreme Court to weigh in and decide if it will take up the question of whether Donald Trump ultimately has immunity for the alleged crimes he committed while president. More on that story in a moment. Our other major legal headline today also involves the U.S. Supreme Court, which is now set to play a major role in the 2024 elections. Today, the justices announced they will decide whether to restrict access to a widely used abortion drug, even in states where it remains legal. The case concerns mifepristone, which, when coupled with another drug, is one of the most common abortion methods in the United States, a prescription regimen that patients can use at home and have been for two decades. This new case could be decided by July 2024, which would throw the court right smack dab into the middle of an election where access to abortion and whether it should be illegal is once again a key issue, if not for many voters, the key issue. Today, the justices also announced that they will consider an appeal from an indicted January 6th rioter. The justices will have to decide how a federal obstruction law can be used related to the Capitol attack, or if it can be used at all. And that could impact hundreds of criminal cases, including that of Donald Trump. We're going to break down the impact of all of these major cases, starting with CNN's Paula Reed, who's taking a closer look at how the Mifepristone case could affect millions of women across the United States. The Supreme Court says it will consider whether to restrict access to a widely used abortion drug. Mifepristone, when taken with another drug, is one of the most commonly used methods of abortion in the U.S. Has this abortion drug been on the market for more than two decades? Yes, 23 years, I think. And has it been used by millions of women during that period? Uh, many millions. Right now, the drug remains available nationwide. The Supreme Court put on hold lower court rulings that would impose restrictions that abortion opponents would like. I am concerned because uh, more than half of the abortions in this country are uh, me medical, medicinal. Uh, and these drugs have been legal in our country for years. Last year, the conservative-leaning court overturned Roe v. Wade, altering the landscape of abortion rights in the U.S. Now, more than half of states outlaw or severely restrict the procedure. By agreeing to take up the case on Mifepristone, the court will once again wade into the abortion debate. A decision, which is expected by July, could put the justices in the middle of the presidential election. Thank you. Where abortion has become a hot issue. I'm pro-life. I believe in creating a culture of life. The unelected justices said that was wrong and it should be back in the hands of the people. I agree, that's where we should be deciding this. The president has been very clear here that he's going to fight that. Defend abortion rights! Abortion battles are also heating up at the state level. This week, the Texas Supreme Court ruled against a woman who sued for the right to an abortion just hours after she fled the state to get her procedure. There's no outcome here that I take home my healthy baby girl, you know, so um, it's hard, you know. And this week, the Arizona Supreme Court heard arguments from abortion opponents who want to revert back to an 1864 state law banning nearly all abortions. Abortion is health care. 
And what that means is that this court's decision will have a profound impact on the ability of pregnant Arizonans to access that health care. State Supreme Courts in Wyoming and New Mexico are also hearing arguments this week on abortion restrictions. And in Michigan, Governor Gretchen Whitmer signed a bill to expand access and repealed a state insurance coverage requirement. Let's protect the freedom to make your own decisions without interference from politicians. And let's get it done. The court also said it will take up a case that could impact the federal election subversion case against former President Trump. The court said they will consider whether part of the federal obstruction law can be used to prosecute some of the rioters involved in January 6th. And how they define that law could impact other cases, including Trump's. And Paul, let's get back to the breaking news. Walk us through this decision by Judge Chutkin in this federal 2020 election subversion trial against Donald Trump. Why is she pausing the case? How long could this pause last? She almost has to do this because these bigger issues about immunity, double jeopardy, those have been appealed to the Court of Appeals. Uh, She no longer has jurisdiction over parts of this case until these issues are resolved. The special counsel, uh, mindful of the calendar and the clock, has asked the Supreme Court to just reach in, decide these issues, and move along as quickly as possible so that this case can still go to trial on March 4th. But even today, just a few moments ago, uh, Judge Chutkin, who has previously said something federal judges never say, Jake, she has said, this case is going to trial on the date I set. She has even acknowledged that the date that she has set here could potentially have to move depending on how long these appeals take because it's just not clear. Usually, questions like this could take months, maybe even over a year, to work its way through the appeals court to the Supreme Court. But this is an extraordinary circumstance, and there's a possibility the justices will answer this themselves. Okay, so just to be clear here, so the special counsel, Jack Smith, he appealed, he went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. He said, you need to decide this issue of immunity, whether Donald Trump is immune from anything he did, potential crimes as president. The Supreme Court said they are going to take that up? What they said is they said, we'll get back to you soon. We'll get back. They have to give the Trump team uh, a little bit of time to weigh in. So the Trump team has until the 20th to weigh in. Uh, Of course, they're not going to want the Supreme Court to to take this up because the, the special counsel wants the Supreme Court to skip the Court of Appeals and just weigh in so that this case can go to trial before the election. And they are relying on precedent from the Nixon-Watergate investigation, where the Supreme Court was able to decide some discrete issues very quickly. So that's what the the special counsel is hoping. The Trump team has time to weigh in, and then we'll find out if the Supreme Court is going to decide these issues. But the Trump team does not want the U.S. Supreme Court to weigh in because they want to drag this out as long as they can. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, that's a fair assessment. While we're still waiting for them to, to issue their briefs, we know. I've talked to people close to the team repeatedly. They know that the merits of these arguments, that he has presidential immunity or double jeopardy issues, that those are not going to prevail. So it's all about delay. So they want to stretch this out as long as they can. They would love to go to the Court of Appeals and then take a few more months to get to the Supreme Court. So they are likely to oppose this move. All right, Paula Reed, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Joining us now to discuss Democratic Senator Tammy Duckworth of Illinois. Senator Duckworth, thanks so much for joining us. So your reaction to the news that a federal judge overseeing this federal election subversion trial is going to delay the case while Trump's appeals over presidential immunity play out potentially all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court? 
Well, I'm, it's deep. I'm just deeply disturbed by this. You know, I think Trump is again trying to show that he's above the law or something, and, and they're not. And, and unfortunately, we have a far right Supreme Court uh, that I'm afraid is going to continue to uh, not follow president and and rule in his favor. Uh, frankly, I think that uh, everything should move forward, and I think Trump should be forced to stand trial. Um, but uh, like everyone else, we're watching and waiting to see what's happening here. So I know you have strong feelings about the Supreme Court announcing today that they are going to take up the abortion medication case to decide whether to restrict mifepristone uh, nationwide. What are your thoughts? Well, I mean, every American should be able to access medication in a manner that the FDA, the federal agency that Congress literally established to make these decisions, determines is safe and effective. Uh, Mifepristone is one of those medications. This far-right Supreme Court is already throughout 50 years of constitutional rights by overturning Roe. Um, and now they're agreeing to hear this case. It's understandable, by the way, that many women across America are afraid that this might be the first step towards a frightening future where their healthcare decisions are not decided by themselves and their doctors, but also by the personal belief of Samuel Alito and any other ultra-conservative judge. Uh, so I'm deeply concerned about this. And frankly, uh, judges are not medical experts. Why are, made, are they making these decisions on behalf of the welfare and, and health and well-being of women? Earlier this week, you said that you will, quote, never stop working to enshrine the right to choose into law. What can Senate Democrats do, though, if the U.S. Supreme Court decides to restrict access to this drug? Well, we can pass the Women's Right to Reproductive Health Care Act, and and we can work to get that across the finish line. Uh, Frankly, uh, we need to make sure that... uh, 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 you know, we oppose the dream for deep-pocketed donors and corporate executives who have direct access to Supreme Court justices, um, uh, as opposed to the uh, protecting the rights of women. Uh, we're going to keep Democrats are continue to stand up in every level for women's right to choose, the right to have their own reproductive choice, and to keep politicians uh, out of their doctor's offices. And if we have to do this state by state, we're going to do that. But certainly at the federal level, I'm going to push for uh, the Women's Right to Reproductive Health Care Act. Uh, Just a reminder of viewers about the case of Kate Cox in Texas. That's the woman uh, who sued. Um, She she wanted to end her pregnancy uh, after learning that her fetus had a deadly condition, trisomy 18. Doctors were warning her uh, that if she carried this child to term, her her fertility was at risk, her health was at risk. Uh, And Senator John Cornyn of Texas was asked to weigh in on the fact that the Texas Supreme Court was trying to force her to carry this this uh, child to term. Take a listen to what Senator Cornyn and your colleague had to say. That's strictly a matter of state law. I'm a federal uh, official. I'm not a state official, so I'm not going to comment on what uh, state officials are doing. I'm happy to comment on anything that I'm responsible for. Senator Ted Cruz, the other senator from Texas, also declined uh, to comment. Uh, Your thoughts? Well, both of them have voted to try to, uh, you know, march towards this nationwide abortion ban. Frankly, what happened to Kate Cox Cox is horrific. Uh, Texas Republicans doing this to her. No one should be forced to leave their state just to get the health care that they need. And again, Kate Cox is being forced to risk her health, is being forced to give birth to a fetus with a fatal condition and jeopardize her future ability to have another child if she wanted to, simply because she lives in Texas. Uh, No woman should have to go through that. Uh, again, Republicans are continuing their march towards a statewide national abortion, sorry, national abortion ban. And I'll never stop working to enshrine the rights of every American in every state to be able to have reproductive choice. 
Uh, I've heard abortion rights activists say that the Texas case is actually an example of the so-called compromise that you hear Republicans talking about um, in existence, because she is 20 weeks pregnant. Uh, no one is arguing that her life is at stake. It's her health and her and her ability to, to, to her future for fertility. So if the so-called 15-week compromise that some people, some Rep Republican politicians talk about goes forward, Kay Cox would, would it, it, she would not be exempt from it. That, that would ban her from being able to get an abortion uh, nationwide as well. Yeah, I, well, you know, the compromise, I don't accept the compromise. Uh, I, I want to support and reinstate Roe v. Wade uh, uh, and with the conditions that are under the Roe v. Wade. Uh, but let me tell you this, in, in state after state that have em, enacted these statewide abortion bans, you have women who are having to sit in hospital parking lots bleeding out until their life is finally in danger before they can get an abortion. And this is happening. You've, we've all heard these horrific stories. And Kate Cox's story is equally horrific. She's trying to preserve her right to have a future child. And they're preventing her from doing that. And now while she has the resources to leave the state to, to access the reproductive health care that she needs, other women in Texas don't. And it's simply horrific that we're in an America today where women have to be forced to leave their state just to get the health care that they need. Democratic Senator Tammy Duckworth of Illinois, thank you so much for your time today. On Capitol Hill, we are nearing the scheduled vote as Republicans push to formalize an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. Plus, uh, their new plans for the president's son, Hunter Biden, who did show up today, not for testimony, uh, but to talk in the way he wanted to talk, uh, not behind closed doors as Republicans wanted, but, well, look at that, right in front of Congress. Stay with us. I'm here today. For six years, I have been the target of the unrelenting Trump attack machine shouting, where's Hunter? Well, here's my answer. I am here. And there he was indeed, President Biden's son, Hunter Biden, outside the Capitol this morning, demanding to testify publicly before the Republican-led House Oversight Committee. The problem was his subpoena is specifically for a closed-door deposition. Now House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer says that his committee will start contempt of Congress proceedings against Hunter Biden for not acceding to their demands. This says the House in the next hour could vote to formalize an impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden after months of Republican holdouts saying there is no evidence tying President Biden to financially benefiting from Hunter's business dealings, they now seem to have turned around and are willing to vote that way. CNN's Evan Pettis is here. Uh, Evan, Hunter Biden technically did not comply with the subpoena, a uh, foreclosed door deposition that was set for today. Um, and when you look at the January 6th hearing, I mean, they did do closed door hearing before they did um, you know, a public hearing. Uh, why is he so intent on testifying publicly? Does he have a legal basis for that? Well, he says that he doesn't trust the Republicans. And let's be clear, what he did today was defy the, the, the subpoena. I mean, the subpoena says this is the place and this is, this is the place and this is the time you're supposed to show up. And he did not do that. He went instead to the Senate side, uh, aptly known the, as the Senate swamp. Right. I mean, it's a metaphor there, right? right. For this whole show that we're, we're watching. Right. That's the place that he's standing right now is called the swamp. Yeah. Right. So the that, that spot. Yeah. And um, 
you know, the reason why is he says he doesn't trust that if he's if he testifies behind closed doors, that they're not going to come out and just twist his words and try to use it against him. Um, but you know, as you as you pointed out, Jake, this is how usually it's done. It's very common for you to do closed door depositions and then go out uh, and then you know have a public hearing if if if, if necessary. The two chairmen there who uh, were sitting there waiting for him uh, spoke to the media uh, who were waiting there with them. Here's what they had to say. This is an investigation about public corruption at the highest levels. We have accumulated mountains of evidence that's concerning to an overwhelming majority of Americans. Look, when Congress asked you to come, you're supposed to come and, uh, and co come and testify. Wait, wait a second. Jim, Jim, <laughs> Jim Jordan said when Congress asked you to come, you're supposed to come and testify? Except, he defied a congressional subpoena. Right, he right. refused to testify. Right. As I said. The Senate swamp. There's a metaphor in this whole show, but look. I mean, the. I, I think what, one of the things that that um, that you you are watching here, right? The, the idea that they're starting this in, impeachment inquiry, and they are also going to try to hold him in contempt. This sets up uh, a few more months of this of this show, right? right. And uh, a lot of this is political. And Hunter Biden sort of addressed that in his statements today. But he does have real legal problems. He's going to go in on trial, potentially in two locations in Los Angeles and in Delaware. So those are serious things that Hunter Biden has to face. It would, it would seem, though, uh, just to note, the House voting to start this impeachment inquiry today undermines the argument in the November 8th subpoena of Hunter Biden that its demands were part of an impeachment inquiry that already had started. I mean, it would seem to undermine that already. Right? right, it does. It does. Because, you know, what they're doing now is trying to formalize this. And one of the reasons why they're doing that is because they know that they have to try to push push this forward. And they try to try to see if they could use this in court to enforce some of their subpoenas. All right, Evan Pettis, thanks so much. Let's go to our 2024 lead right now in 2024 Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley campaigning today alongside New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu. One day after that big endorsement from the Republican governor, CNN's Stanton Bash uh, is in Concord, New Hampshire, where earlier today she sat down with Haley and Governor Sununu. And Dana, you asked Haley to respond to an attack from the town hall I hosted last night with Governor Ron DeSantis. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, look, you know that uh, the uh, governor of Florida, who you were with, the uh, former governor of New Jersey, Chris Christie, and Nikki Haley, they were all vying in a very public way for Chris Sununu's endorsement. And uh, look, they, Chris Christie was quite disappointed, uh, even though he's being publicly uh, quite different about it. Ron DeSantis was not uh, thrilled, but when you asked him about it last night, uh, he turned it not against uh, the governor, but against Nikki Haley. So I asked both of them about that moment last night. Governor DeSantis did a town hall with CNN in Iowa last night, and he was asked about this endorsement. And he said, even a campaigner as good as Chris is not going to be able to paper over Nikki being an establishment candidate. What do you say to that? You can say something, but it doesn't make it true. I was a Tea Party candidate when I became governor. I was a strong conservative governor that brought an 11% unemployment down to 3% unemployment, that we went and we moved thousands of people from welfare to work. We reformed education. We did tort reform. We did voter ID. And then you saw me go to the UN and I took the kick me sign off of our backs and America was respected again. Everything I've ever done 
has been strong. It's been economic freedom. It's been individual freedom. It's been making sure that I've made people proud along the way. So he can say establishment or whatever. I don't think labels matter. I think at the end of the day, this is we're fighting to save America. I truly believe that. And we're going to continue to do it. And Chris's endorsement has just really given us a big kick at a time that the momentum was building. And this is going to continue to take us where we need to go. And Jake, where you were last night in Iowa with the candidate you were with, uh, Ron DeSantis, he got a big endorsement there from the sitting governor, who's quite popular with Republicans, Kim Reynolds. According to the polls, that didn't give him a bump at all. And so the big question is whether or not it will be different where I am here in New Hampshire with Governor Sununu. The two of them are campaigning pretty actively together today uh, and that will continue to do so. And Sununu says that he's going to give as much as he can to try to get her numbers up because she is very far behind Donald Trump here, just like she and others are pretty much everywhere across uh, the country. And the one other thing that I want to mention is that after they left, they went to a town hall and a voter stood up, Jake, and said to Nikki Haley, I don't want you to uh, just sort of talk around Donald Trump. I want you to go after him. So in these new town hall environments, she is really hearing with Nunu from the voters who expect nothing less here in New Hampshire. All right, Dana Bash in the great state of New Hampshire. Good to see you. Vivek Ramaswamy will get his moment center stage tonight in the CNN presidential town hall. My friend and colleague Abby Phillip will moderate that discussion tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern, only here on CNN. Then, immediately after, of course, stay tuned for King Charles with Gail King and Charles Barkley. That's at 10 o'clock Eastern, also only here on CNN. Coming up, the White House today, struggling to answer for President Biden's comments yesterday in which he said Israel was indiscriminately bombing Gaza. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life. Lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs... That would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. We are back with our worldly tensions between the leaders of Israel and the United States continue to bubble to the surface after President Biden told donors yesterday that Israel's, quote, indiscriminate bombing is eroding global support for Israel. Biden candidly noted that when he brought that up with Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel, the response from Netanyahu was, quote, 
Well, you carpet bombed Germany. You dropped the atom bomb. A lot of civilians died, unquote. Biden's description of indiscriminate bombing, of course, is decidedly at odds with the White House insistence that Israel has been trying to reduce civilian casualties. CNN's senior White House correspondent MJ Lee joins us now. And MJ, uh, you were all over this at the White House briefing today trying to figure out how these two things made sense, which, of course, they do not. And uh, the White House spokesman, John Kirby, he, he really struggled to square that. Yeah, Jake, you know, when the president made these comments yesterday, they were so striking because it basically doesn't get more blunt than the word indiscriminate to describe a country's conduct in war. And I came out of a, a pretty remarkable White House press briefing just now where White House spokesman John Kirby uh, continued repeatedly to insist uh, that Israel has the intent to try to minimize civilian casualties despite what the president said yesterday. Take a listen indiscriminate just by definition means without discrimination it means not deliberate not careful why insist that the intent is there to minimize civilian casualties when the president himself said yesterday that israel is bombing indiscriminately sometimes in war and again i'm not speaking for the israelis sometimes in war your best plans your best execution of those plans doesn't always go the way you want it to go it doesn't always go the way you expect it to go um, we know that from bitter experience in our own military, um, uh, no matter how precise and targeted we tried to be in Iraq and Afghanistan. I'm saying, as I've casualties, but in practice, that is not what you are seeing happen. I'm saying that there is a clear intent by the Israelis, an intent that they have admitted to publicly, that they are doing everything they can to reduce civilian casualties. I'm saying, and I have said earlier, that we are seeing them act on that intent in positive ways. And Jake, I want to be clear, a number of my colleagues also press Kirby on these comments, and I do just want to give you a sampling. Uh, is Israel behaving in accordance with international law, indiscriminately bombing Gaza? Is that not a war crime? Does this mean that the U.S. should put conditions on its military aid? At one point, he was even asked whether the president yesterday misspoke. Uh, that snippet that you just played, that exchange with me, sort of gives you a good sense of how John Kirby uh, answered many of those questions. I think we are clearly uh, Jake, seeing a White House that is increasingly struggling to answer to Israel's war tactics here. Yeah. I mean, the short answer is you can't square it. It doesn't make sense. You can either be doing everything you can to avoid civilian casualties or indiscriminately bombing. You can't be doing both. MJ Lee at the White House. Thanks so much. Coming up, new fallout after the uproar over three college presidents and their testimony in anti-Semitism. There are accusations of plagiarism, and now it's not just Harvard's president who is on defense. Stay with us. The U.S. House of Representatives is set to vote today on a bipartisan resolution condemning anti-Semitism on college campuses and the testimony from three university presidents from Harvard, MIT, and Penn who failed to say whether calling for the genocide of Jews violated their school's codes of conduct at that disastrous congressional hearing last week. The president of Penn, of course, resigned five days later. Harvard president Claudine Gay had also been under pressure to resign over her comments at the hearing, which she later apologized for. She has also been accused of plagiarizing parts of four papers published between 1993 and 2017. Harvard's governing body says it is, quote, unanimously standing in support of President Gay, despite all of this, and that their analysis found, quote, no violation of Harvard standards for research misconduct. President Gay is proactively requesting four corrections in two articles 
to insert citations and quotation marks that were omitted from the original publications. And now House Republican Conference Chairwoman Elise Stefanik, Republican of New York, who has been leading the charge to highlight anti-Semitism across college campuses, is calling out for her alma mater to uh, not, no longer stand by its president. This is a moral failure of Harvard's leadership and higher education leadership at the highest levels. And the only change they have made to their code of conduct, where they failed to condemn calls for genocide of the Jewish people, the only update to the code of conduct is to allow a plagiarist as the president of Harvard. Meanwhile, Congresswoman Stefanik herself is also being accused of plagiarism by a de Democratic colleague, uh, Congresswoman Kathy Manning. Congresswoman Manning says she drafted a letter to the boards of Penn, Harvard, and MIT following the hearing, which she then shared with Congresswoman Stefanik, who made edits and made it her own. Stefanik denies that it's plagiarism. She said Manning, quote, approached me on the House floor with a rough draft for a joint letter. I told her I would like to review and would likely strengthen the language our office's then decided to go in different directions with two separate versions, unquote. Either way, Stefanik's true commitment to fighting anti-Semitism, wherever it is, is being questioned by a different Democrat, Congressman Jamie Raskin, who in a new CNN op-ed asks Stefanik five questions about anti-Semitism within the Republican ranks. The first asks if a presidential candidate is qualified to be president if he hosted at his home for dinner Nick Fuentes, an avowedly pro-Hitler Holocaust revisionist calling for a holy war against the Jewish people. If you need a reminder, here is Nick Fuentes just a few days ago. And just a reminder, this is a man Trump hosted for dinner at Mar-a-Lago last year. When we take power, they need to be given the death penalty. People that are suppressing the name Christ and suppressing Christianity, they must be absolutely annihilated when we take power. This is not the domain of atheists or devil worshipers or perfidious Jews. This is Christ's country. We wanted to ask uh, Congresswoman Stefanik about the testimony last week and these questions from Congressman Raskin and some other issues. Uh, she declined to come on. So let's bring on uh, Congressman Raskin. Uh, so Congressman Raskin, your first question to Stefanik was about that dinner that Trump hosted with Fuentes and Kanye West, another Holocaust denier. You also asked this, quote, do you regret endorsing Trump for president in 2016? Just days after he tweeted an image of the star of David superimposed over Hillary Clinton's face and a thick pile of cash, yes or no, Miss Stefanik, um, did, you, did you get a specific response at all to these questions about anti-Semitism in the Republican ranks? Well, no, not at all. She did just what the Ivy League college presidents uh, did, according to Miss Stefanik. She evaded. In fact, she completely dodged the questions. Um, she said that Donald Trump was the greatest president that there that there'd ever been for uh, Jewish Americans. And then she gave five reasons that were not in answer to my five questions, but they included things like him moving the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, uh, the Golan Heights, and him uh, having uh, uh, destroyed the Iran nuclear agreement. Uh, those are all foreign policy issues related to Israel and have nothing to do with the questions I raised about domestic violent anti-Semitism, like the guy who showed up um, at the Tree of Life synagogue and murdered 11 Jews in the worst anti-Semitic attack in American history. Um, she has herself dabbled 
in great replacement theory. And of course, the mass murderer in that case invoked great replacement theory about how Jews and George Soros were bringing in uh, alien races to replace the native white population. And that's something that's been invoked in other mass murders, including in Buffalo, in El Paso, Texas. And I asked her to uh, deal with that question, but she wouldn't. So she completely dodged and evaded everything I asked her about. But there are more and more questions being asked about her indulgence of or embrace of anti-Semitism by Donald Trump and by the Republican Party. So I, one of the, I, find, I always find that so strange whenever anyone questions um, anyone aligned with Donald Trump about his flirtation with anti-Semites, they immediately start talking about Jerusalem. I don't live in Israel. I, I live in Washington, D.C. Why are you bringing up a foreign country? I mean, I understand it's, it's a Jewish country, but that's like talking to a Catholic who's upset about discrimination against Catholics and talking about how great you've been to Rome. It, that, that has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Well, you've got it. And in fact, Donald Trump is someone who constantly repeats that anti-Semitic trope and fallacy. He, re he several times had uh, different Republican Jewish groups come to the White House and he inevitably said stuff like, well, uh, you people have a great country. We love your country. Um, and you have a great prime minister. So he treats American Jews um, like basically visiting Israelis, um, which, you know, partakes obviously of uh, anti-Semitic myths about dual loyalty and so on. But, you know, the, the, the issue with Elise Stefanik is that while she's posing as a great champion of the Jews and opponent of anti-Semitism on campus and for college presidents, she won't say anything about presidential anti-Semitism when it comes to the White House, the real president of the United States. And that, of course, is a much greater threat to Jews in America when you have Donald Trump who says things like they're very fine people on both sides of an anti-Semitic race riot called by neo-Nazis in Charlottesville, Virginia. Right. But let me ask you, did you think that that hearing uh, with the university presidents achieved something important and was illustrative and did bring out uh, the fact that for whatever reason, these three presidents of universities seem to have trouble with a question that seemed very basic in terms of whether or not hate speech against Jews was as offensive as hate speech against other minority groups might be? I mean, I've heard a lot well, of, I, I've, I've heard yeah. a lot of Jews say that they thought that hearing was well done, whatever you think of Congresswoman Stefanik separately from that. Well, like most college presidents, they were completely bureaucratic and morally tone deaf. Uh, they gave these overly legalistic answers. If somebody had asked me if one of your students or faculty or staff people is calling for the genocide of the Jews or anybody else, what would you do? I would immediately dispatch the campus police to go over there to see if anybody's in danger because in the age of uh, tens of millions of AR-15s in our society and lax Republican gun laws, that person could be an immediate danger to Jews and anybody else there around. And if they're not, they probably need an immediate mental diagnostic. They need a mental health exam. And if that's not the case, well, then they are almost certainly endangering the learning environment, creating a hostile learning environment, which is what Title VI is all about. And I think that's what the presidents yeah. rushed to discuss. There's a defense of them, by the way, by 
uh, Ronald Reagan's Solicitor General, Charles Freed, who said they gave totally appropriate legalistic answers. They're not the answers I would have given for one minute. They didn't show any common sense at all. But guess who's not showing any common sense right now? People in Congress who are about to get swept away with Elise Stefanik's McCarthy-like crusade she wants to dictate who's going to be college president or university president in private colleges across America. Are these really the worst offenders? A Haitian-American president at Harvard, a Jewish-American uh, president at MIT? Has she done a complete study of racism and anti-Semitism in the campuses? Because she was giving hypothetical questions. There might be some real cases of anti-Semitic violence or racist abuse that are taking place there. And what about the campuses where there's sexual yeah. harassment and sexual violence where presidents are looking the other way. Is that going to be our new job? If it is, let's do it systematically and give people some due process rights. In the meantime, the boards of Harvard and MIT have been standing by their presidents, and I don't think the Congress of the United States needs to be dictating to them who should resign and who shouldn't. Your larger point, though, however, that if anti-Semitism is ugly on a campus, uh, it's also ugly uh, when it's uh, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, standing at a white supremacist conference. Well, uh, and by the day. way, Marjorie Taylor, Marjorie Taylor Greene goes to Nicholas Fuentes' conference. Right, and so, and so, so does Paul Gosar. Gosar. Yeah. What, yeah. What, what does, uh, you know, what does a brave Miss Stefanik have to say about that? Is she right. such no. uh, a champion anti against anti-Semitism yeah. that she's yeah. willing to it's speak either out anti -Semitism, about It's either anti-Semitism offending you all the time or none of the time. You can't have it. It only offends you when it's on the left or on the right, depending on where you stand. Democratic Congressman Jamie Raskin, thanks so much. Up next, uh, the historic climate deal with arguably major discrepancies in the fine print. Stay with us. Just into our money lead, a very big day on Wall Street today as markets are reacting positively to the Federal Reserve's final policy decision of the year. Let's go straight to CNN's Vanessa Yurkiewicz. Vanessa, the Dow hit a pretty significant milestone. Absolutely. At 2 p.m. when the Fed announced that it was going to pause rates, we saw the Dow pop. You can see it right there at 2 p.m. Ultimately, that led the Dow to close up 1.4 percent, setting a new all-time record high, beating its record that was set two years ago. And this was a great day for Wall Street overall, the Nasdaq and the S&P also gaining and closing up. What you're seeing there is traders liking the pause that the Fed announced today, but also liking the fact that what they had baked into markets and what they were expecting next year, rate cuts, is exactly what the Federal Reserve has projected. We could see three rate cuts next year. That's encouraging also for the American people who are dealing with high mortgage rates, high interest rates. Rate pauses and rate cuts are good for the American people. And clearly, markets are also liking what they're seeing, Jake. All right, Vanessa Yurkiewicz, thanks so much. Some good news for a change. In our Earth Matters series, some agreement out of the United Nations Climate Change Summit, known as COP28, a historic statement which calls on countries to move away from using fossil fuels. The bad news, scientists say, the, the language is so vague it could allow countries to take very little action at all. Sinan's Bill Weir is following this unprecedented agreement, and Bill, it sounds good, but there are a lot of loopholes I hear. There are, Jake, yes. It is historic that for the first time in 28 tries, humanity is finally actually naming the problem uh, behind climate change. It is a fossil fuel crisis, and the transition away from them seems encouraging, especially when it comes from the, the CEO of Abu Dhabi's national oil company. 
But he's going to go back to his day job uh, next week, Jake, uh, where they have plans to expand oil and gas uh, expansion by $150 billion. So these are sort of the high points. Uh, transitioning away, net zero emissions are still going for that. Uh, they want, there's sort of eight different pathways that countries could take to help on this uh, endeavor, including helping the, the world triple renewable resources and double energy efficiency. And yes, helping the poor developing countries suffering the brunt of this. Uh, but there's no real direction on, on financing, on how to help uh, that transition along. And then in the meantime, the United States is the biggest exporter of oil and gas in the world. The U.S. is the biggest petrostate these days. So John Kerry, trying to spin this as a positive, has to go back to a White House that has approved huge infrastructure in oil and gas. All right, Bill Weir, thanks so much. Minutes from now, Republicans will vote to begin the process to impeach President Biden. For what? That's the question. Stay with us. The assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, a vote on the House floor as Republicans look to strengthen their case for an impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden. Plus, Donald Trump's return to Iowa as a challenger with momentum in the 2024 race tries to take him on. With me, I have a different approach. No drama, no vendettas, no whining. It's about work for me. And leading this hour, the new audio obtained only by CNN, a lawyer in the Oval Office shortly after Donald Trump's 2020 loss, later describing key moments that led to the fake electors scheme, which resulted in criminal cases against many people, including Donald Trump. CNN's Marshall Cohen is here with the exclusive reporting. So, Marshall, we're talking about Kenneth Chesbro, the uh, Wisconsin attorney. What happened in his interview with prosecutors and in the Oval Office? Well, he told prosecutors about what he called a photo op gone wrong in the Oval Office in December 2020. Go back to that hectic time. At that moment, Trump's team in Wisconsin had just lost their election challenge. And the lawyers who led that case were in D.C. for a meet and greet with their client. Before they walked into the Oval Office, they were told, do not give him false hope. Do not indulge the conspiracies about the election. Some of them listened, some of them didn't. Here is a clip from Ken Chesbro describing what the lead attorney in Wisconsin Jim Troopas told Donald Trump. It's clear that um, Troopas personally told the president there was zero hope for Wisconsin. As part of this message, I, I think, crafted to try to get him to concede or just you know, give up this, this, this long shot challenge. So there was a, there was a conscious effort to um, deflect him from a sense of any possibility that he could pull out the election. Zero hope. That's what he said. So. Uh, look, some people around Trump told him that he couldn't win, and he went on and tried to overturn the election anyway. That's a huge part of special counsel Jack Smith's criminal case. That indictment is filled to the brim with examples of Trump being told by advisors and lawyers that he lost. This Oval Office meeting was not in the indictment, so it builds on the existing case, the existing evidence against Trump. And you also say that another part of the audio, audio reveals something that could possibly help 
Donald Trump's defense. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's when Chesbro started talking in the meeting uh, with Donald Trump. Uh, again, remember, he was told, don't give Trump any hope. Once the conversation moved to Arizona, he did just that. Take a listen. I, I ended up explaining that Arizona was still hypothetically possible because the alter-electors had voted. And I explained the whole logic. Because the alter-electors had voted, we had more time to win the litigation. So it was, I think, clear in a way that maybe it hadn't been before that we had till January 6th to, to win. So he brought up January 6th, brought up the fake electors. He told Trump that there was still a viable path to keep contesting the election. This was immediately met with fallout, Reince Priebus, who helped arrange the meeting because of his Wisconsin connections and the former White RNC House chairman and the former White House chief of staff. Exactly. Yeah. He helped arrange the meeting. He was in the room. He was livid. Listen to Chesbro describing Priebus's reaction. Right after the meeting, um, Troopus, well, Troopus said that 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 Reince Priebus was extremely concerned with what I told the president about Arizona and about the real deadline being January 6th and um, that he was going to do damage control. Reince was going to follow up and I, I, I mean, I, I was trying to mitigate whatever optimism I guess I created. So some people told Trump he lost. Some people told Trump he could keep fighting. We all know which path he chose. Uh, which, of course, ended with the insurrection here in Washington. Yeah, also ended up with Kenneth Chesbrough getting indicted. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and Trump. And, and Donald Trump. Uh, Marsh Cohen, excellent reporting. Thank you so much. Senior political correspondent for The New York Times. Maggie Haberman is here. She left her Pulitzer Prize at home. Maggie, uh, what stands out to you most when you hear uh, this, uh, this, these tapes uh, and Marshall's excellent reporting? Honestly, it's terrific reporting, and it's actually the fact of this meeting happening in the first place is what stands out to me, because when Chesbro pleaded guilty and Jenna Ellis pleaded guilty, the basic takeaway for people around Trump was, well, Chesbro didn't really deal with Trump directly, so he doesn't know that much, but Jenna Ellis did. There's clearly a lot more to learn about what was happening in these various interactions. And the fact that, as Marshall said, he brought it up proactively, giving the desire by all of these people around Trump, not to the same degree, but to please him, to bring yeah. him some kind of offering, is what stood out to me there. And Chesbro is clearly willing to talk pretty openly yes. uh, in a way that could be pretty damaging to Donald Trump. What do you know about others in Trump's circle who might also be willing to flip. I'm, I'm thinking, of course, of a different White House chief of staff, Mark Meadows. Are the dominoes starting to follow here? I think we're going to wait a long time until we would see something like that. Look, I can't predict whether Meadows will flip. If he does, I think it would be problematic for Trump, just given the volume of what he knows. But I, I think that he uh, shared enough with investigators that they're going to be able to paint a pretty compelling picture at this point already. I'm not sure how badly they need a plea like that as opposed to a plea like this. I just would say one other thing that stood out to me from that audio is that Reince Priebus was probably having PTSD yeah. from trying to have you know a, a meeting not get derailed from the time when he was chief of staff in that White House. It's also just so odd because here you have this, this president and he has all these people that he knows mm -hmm. um, the White House counsel, his attorney general, mm -hmm. former White House chiefs of staff, um, like Ryan Spreebus, et cetera, all of them saying, it's over, right. you lost. And then this, just these stragglers are coming in, people he doesn't know, barely knows, whatever. They tell him what he likes, mm -hmm. so he listens. So there used to be a line that one of his senior advisors would use, which is that if Trump wants 
an opinion on something, he will ask 49 people, and then a 50th of that 50th will give him the answer that he wants. And that's literally what you saw here. It was a parade of people, as you say, telling him this is over. Even if they weren't all doing it that declaratively, there were enough people telling him you are out of options here. And then he gets one who says, no, 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 this is real. And he goes for that. Yeah, it's just these stray dogs that he brings in and just listens to them bark as long as he likes the sound of it. Let's move to the news today. A federal judge has just paused Donald Trump's uh, 2024 election interference case, which could lead his March 2024 trial to be delayed. Uh, Earlier today, uh, Trump lawyers compared special counsel Jack Smith to the Grinch uh, for trying to uh, keep the trial on schedule. Here is what they wrote. This is an honest-to-God court filing. My hand to God. Quote, this proposed schedule would require attorneys and support staff to work round the clock through the holidays, inevitably disrupting family and travel plans. It is as if the special counsel growled with his Grinch fingers, nervously drumming, I must find some way to keep Christmas from coming, but how? So the lawyers of Whoville could have a bleak Christmas, as I guess is the argument. Um, what are the real world and, um, and uh, political consequences and legal consequences if the trial is delayed, and how likely do you think it is? It's, there is a real possibility the trial will be delayed. I think that the March 4th start date has seemed aspirational for some time. The question is, how long? Does it start, say, before the Republican nominating convention in mid-July? Does it start at some point later in the summer? Would the judge feel okay starting it in August? And I, there's so many variables built into this. It's very hard to say when this will begin. It is still seen as the likeliest trial to start before the election, if not the only one. But there's a, a lot of moving parts. Um, and obviously, you can't, you can't keep these trials, uh, tr- you can't keep track of them without a program especially when you bring in some of the other players. Rudy Giuliani already found liable for the defamation of those two election workers uh, who the court found were greatly harmed by his election lies. They're seeking tens of millions of dollars. At a a trial today, um, those uh, trial today, uh, um, the Giuliani told reporters everything he said about the women was true. Um, And this could uh, support another defamation claim, according to the judge. We know Giuliani already has serious financial troubles due to all the Trump legal cases at this point. Does he have value digging into these lies more than the money he could lose become of it, do you think? No, it's hard to fathom why Giuliani is saying what he is saying. And I think that anybody who has been around Giuliani, who is no longer with him privately, says the same thing. People can't understand what the strategy is here. Why is he even testifying? I mean, to be quite frank, he says a lot of really wild, crazy, untrue things. And he's now saying them you know, under oath. Based on people I talk to who are close to him, there is a part of him that genuinely believes that he has been proven right about various things, whether it is some of his arguments about Hunter Biden, because remember, he was the one who was trying to force that laptop into the conversation in 2020, uh, that he genuinely believes that he is right in some of the allegations he is making here. And they all, not all, but many of them have adopted the Donald Trump ethos of fight, fight, fight. If If you believe you're right, then you fight. And I think that is what he is doing. This is different than what I would have expected expected to see him do uh, a couple of decades ago. Last question. Donald Trump has clearly been campaigning something of a basement campaign, something of the kind of big campaign that Joe Biden did in 2020. A lot of Republicans made fun of him. They talked about how mm-hmm. Donald Trump was out there doing six, seven events a day. Joe Biden was doing maybe one. Donald Trump's not even doing one campaign event a day. He might be doing two or three a week. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, he's 77. Mm-hmm. Obviously, he's far and ahead the front runner. He doesn't need to do it. Um, at, at what point do you think uh, the pride 
that he feels about the fact that he used to be so vigorous and able to do this. And it's pretty apparent that he doesn't seem capable of doing it anymore. At least there's no evidence that he can do it anymore, that that's going to cause him to try to get back into that old routine. Among other things, he's not doing rallies. Yes, he is older. Um, yes, he is far ahead. They also cost a lot of money, and so they don't see the reason to spend campaign resources when they don't have to. I don't think that that is a, proving himself in that way as a top-of-mind concern for him, especially if, as they hope, Iowa delivers him a sizable victory mm-hmm. on January 15th. Remember, it's a state that he lost in right. 2016. He is so much more focused on the legal cases than on specifically the political campaign oh. on balance right now, and specifically the a case we haven't talked about, the New York Attorney General case, because that involves his business and that involves the extent to which he is going to be able to continue to run his business as is, and we will know the details of that outcome in January. And he will appeal whatever that is, and that's going to go on for a while. But that case cuts at the heart of his identity and who he is. It is just fundamentally different than anything else we're talking about. It seems very likely he's going to lose that case, have to pay a fine, and maybe lose his business license in New real, York. It could be a really big case. We don't know how many properties it impacts. It, yeah. it, we, there are so many unanswered questions. It's tough to see that case going his way. Maggie Hayden. It already hasn't. He's already lost it. It's right. The question is just what the outcome How bad is. the penalty is Correct. going to be. Right. That's what I mean. Yeah. Uh, Maggie Haberman, thanks so much. This hour, the House, starting a series of votes, expected to include whether or not to formalize an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. For what, you ask? Good question. We're going to go to the Hill with CNN's Manu Raja. We'll talk about that next. And we're back with our politics lead, where within the hour, we expect the Republican-led House of Representatives to pass an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. This comes after months of Republican holdouts saying there is no evidence that they've seen suggesting that President Biden financially benefited personally from any of his son Hunter's business dealings. Despite saying that, they are now getting in line, saying, yes, we're going to open an inquiry to see if there is anything there. This vote comes hours after Hunter marched up to Capitol Hill defying House Republican subpoena to testify behind closed doors for an interview. This is what Hunter had to say. There's no evidence to support the allegations that my father was financially involved in my business because it did not happen. I'm proud of my time serving on a dozen different boards of directors. And I'm proud of my efforts to forge global business relationships. CNN's Manu Raju is on Capitol Hill, where it has certainly been a dramatic day. Manu, why does it seem that most, if not all, House Republicans are going to support this impeachment inquiry vote, even though some of them are still saying they haven't seen any credible evidence that President Biden financially benefited from any of Hunter's business deals? Yeah, and a lot of those members are coming from the swing districts. Remember, there are 18 Republicans who are from districts that President Biden himself carried. They are making a big distinction. They're trying to say this is just a vote for allow the investigation to go forward, empower the investigation to try to get documents where they're unable to get documents, give them more power in court. Even though this impeachment inquiry has been going on since September, this is just a vote, a symbolic vote of sorts, to say that this has formally been authorized. But those members are still downplaying or saying that this is much different than actually charging the president with high crimes or misdemeanors, saying that there needs to be much more evidence gathered before they will agree to charge the president and making him the fourth president ever to be impeached. But still, there are still some seniors, prominent Republicans in the House GOP who are making very clear that they believe that impeachment is still likely. That is in the words of one congressman, Byron Donalds. 
So I think there's a, there's plenty of proof there. We're going to tie all this down. So I think it's uh, pretty likely that we end up moving towards impeachment. But we don't want to get ahead of ourselves. We want the evidence to speak for itself. A lot of those members, even the same members say, they haven't seen the evidence yet to prove that Joe Biden acted corruptly to help his son. Well, that's why we're going to finish our investigation. So our point is very clear. Voting for an impeachment inquiry allows us to finish our investigation. So this vote is expected to happen later this hour, Jake, and we do expect that Speaker Mike Johnson will have the votes along party lines to officially authorize this impeachment inquiry. We, there's potentially one Republican no vote. Ken Buck of Colorado will be watching his vote, but he can no, can't afford to lose more than three votes, and we don't expect that to happen. But still, Jake, there is still a lot of questions about where this investigation goes, what evidence they'll actually get, and whether it'll actually lead to the president's impeachment all major questions for the new speaker as he grapples with a lot of members who want to push for impeachment. Others saying, where's the evidence? Jake. Yeah, it's a good question. Meanwhile, House Republicans are moving forward with putting Hunter Biden in contempt of Congress. Yeah, and we expect those proceedings to continue on in the new year. It's from threat from coming from James Comer, the House Oversight Chairman, as well as Jim Jordan, the House Judiciary Committee Chairman, in the aftermath of Hunter Biden's decision to defy the Republican subpoena today. They said that they plan to move forward with those proceedings, but those proceedings will take some time. First, it has to get approved by the House Committee, then the full House, and then referred to the U.S. Attorney before deciding whether charges can be placed. So, Jake, that's going to take some time, but Republicans say they still plan to press ahead on that if Hunter Biden does not comply. Little quiz for you, Manu. Can you think of a current Republican chairman of a House committee who also defied a congressional subpoena? Well, that would be Jim Jordan of the oh, House Select Committee. Oh, yes. He decided not to comply with yes. that subpoena. Right. Yes. True. Good. All right. Collect your prize after work. Manu Raju, thanks so much. Coming up, some of the criticism inside Israel right now of the country's controversial prime minister. I'm going to speak next with a man who says Benjamin Netanyahu, quote, must be politically destroyed or Israel will go down with him. Our 2024 lead. Cue the music. Yes. Nice. All right. So 33 days. 33 days. That's all we have left until the Republican Iowa caucuses, January 15th. And it's now when you're going to see the candidates try to break through the noise and win over votes in the next 33 days. And that's what we're seeing today. Let's bring in CNN's 2014 Kristen Holmes. Start with you, Donald Trump, back in Iowa today. What are we expecting? Yeah, Jake, we are told this is going to be one of his traditional stump speeches here in Iowa. He will go after Ron DeSantis, mainly talking about his record while he was in Congress and ethanol. He thinks this is a winning talking point for him. Really, the larger point here is that we're hearing from Donald Trump's team that there is this renewed sense of confidence here in the first caucus state, uh, particularly because of that Des Moines Register poll that had him at 51 percent and Ron DeSantis at 19 percent. Something you and I have talked about is that on the ground here in Iowa, GOP operatives have long said, and this is people who support Trump or DeSantis both, uh, that they believe that while the polls were correct, that they thought the margin was smaller. But given this most recent polling, they don't think it's possible for DeSantis to catch up. And that is something that I'm hearing from the Trump team they are really capitalizing on. Now, just despite that, we are seeing Donald Trump ramping up his campaign. This is the beginning of a number of stops. He will be in New Hampshire, in Nevada over the weekend, and then back in Iowa. But one thing to make clear is that even though he is ramping up his presence on the 
campaign trail, he is still being far outpaced by his rivals who are still trailing him in the polls, both in Iowa and nationally, Jake. Jeff Zellin, he's in New Hampshire with Nikki Haley, a former ambassador and South Carolina governor. She's trying to capitalize today on a big endorsement last night from the state's high-profile popular governor, Chris Sununu. Uh, what's her pitch to voters today, Jeff? Well, Jake, Governor Sununu calls this a reset in the, uh, in the New Hampshire primary race. We will, of course, see about that. But the pitch that Nikki Haley is making to voters, including at this room here in Keene in just a short time, is that she is a new generational candidate, that she is someone who can reach out to a broad cross-section of voters. Now, she, of course, has not spent nearly as much time in her campaign uh, saying what is bad about Donald Trump, but what she would do for the future. So there certainly is uh, a strong uh, sense that uh, the endorsement from the very popular governor here uh, can move the needle for her. At least they hope it can. He'll be putting his political organization behind her. They'll be campaigning aggressively, uh, really a two-person show, if you will. But it really is uh, somewhat of a race for second place here. And she may be ahead of DeSantis on that score here in New Hampshire, not in Iowa. But Donald Trump still commands uh, the lead here in New Hampshire as well, that she is making the argument that it's time for voters to take a leap. She makes a general election argument, Jake, that she can uh, defeat President Biden in a head-to-head matchup far more than Donald Trump can. Jake. All right. And Jessica Dean, still in Iowa. I saw you there last night ahead of the big CNN town hall tonight with Vivek Ramaswamy. Uh, Jessica, uh, how is Ramaswamy uh, trying to stand out? Yes, we're still here, Jake. Vivek Ramaswamy is going to take the stage behind me at 9 p.m. Eastern with Abby Phillip. Look, he is all across the state of Iowa. Just to show you a map that I believe we have, you can see kind of all of the places he's hitting. That's just today. So that is really how he's trying to contrast himself with these other candidates. You mentioned that Des Moines Register NBC News poll uh, that had Trump at 51 percent. Ramaswamy is polling in the single digits. So uh, he certainly uh, has a lot of uh, room to make up to be a contender here in Iowa. But you can't fault uh, the energy that he's putting out. I think by the time he makes all of those stops and then counts our town hall and one post-town hall stop, it will be 10 stops in one day. Uh, he's going to continue that pacing for the next several days, Jake. So that's what he's hoping might possibly set him apart. All right, Kristen Holmes, Jeff Zeleny, Jessica Dean, the 2024 team, thanks to all of you, Vivek Ramaswamy. Again, we'll get his moment center stage tonight in the CNN Presidential Town Hall, where my friend and colleague Abby Phillip will moderate the discussion between Ramaswamy and Iowa voters. That's tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern, only here on CNN. We're going to turn to our world lead now in a growing public rift between President Biden and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu this afternoon. The White House desperately trying to clean up Biden's comments after he told supporters on Tuesday that Israel's offensive in Gaza is, quote, indiscriminate, the bombing indiscriminate, while publicly other Biden administration officials have been insisting that Israel's intent is to limit civilian casualties. Joining us now, senior writer on Israeli and American politics for the Israeli newspaper Haaretz, Alon Pincus. He's also a former ambassador and served in as an advisor to multiple Israeli foreign ministers and a prime minister. Uh, Mr. Ambassador, thanks so much for joining us. So in your recent article in Haaretz titled, Netanyahu must be politically destroyed or Israel will go down with him. You lay out the prime minister's missteps in your view with China, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Iran, and the US. You say, quote, Netanyahu always meddling in and manipulating internal US politics has impressively managed to turn Israel into a wedge issue in Washington in contrast to decades of sacrosanct bipartisanship. What do you make of how uh, Biden has been trying to handle this relationship and the um, 
the chasms we've seen bubbling up in recent days, such as Biden, I don't know if it was accidental or not, but Biden saying the other day that Israel was indiscriminately bombing Gaza. Well, hi, Jake. Um, well, look, Biden uh, managed this admirably. I mean, I can't think of any other president, Republican or Democrat, that would have handled this uh, um, in a better way, given that parallel to this, there's a Ukraine crisis, and parallel to that, there's a China challenge and all that uh, um, and, and, and other things. Uh, but by handling it the way he did, he also put himself in a certain bind. By extending to Israel his generous, heartfelt, unwavering support by visiting here, uh, um, you know, 11 days after the war broke out, after the atrocities of October 7th, he, uh, he positioned himself um, in, in a way that he thought in due time would allow him to apply pressure or, uh, uh, you know, use levers of power or influence over Netanyahu, what he didn't, uh, uh, apparently, what no one in Washington thought would happen is that out of the, uh, out of the catastrophe of 7 uh, uh, October, uh, Mr. Netanyahu will go back to his old MO, to his old uh, uh, modus operandi, and, and uh, try to uh, um, initiate, instigate a showdown with Biden because it helps, he thinks at least, it helps him politically. How concerned are you, I've heard some Israelis express this concern, that the prime minister is going to continue this war in Gaza longer than it needs to go, because the moment it's over, uh, those crowds uh, calling for his resignation and the political desire to get rid of him as prime minister, and, it, and you know this better than I, it's very strong. He's very unpopular right now. I think his approval rating is like 25%. Um, that he just wants to stave that off as much as possible. Do you think he's actually cynical enough that he would extend the war longer than it needs to go so as to stave that off? Absolutely. Uh, um, on a scale of one to 10, he's an 11 in terms of uh, cynicism and, and uh, uh, the, the way he's manip trying to manipulate even the American-Israeli relationship and take advantage and abuse the friendship that uh, Biden extended to him. But, but. There's, there's also, to be fair, um, you know, extending the war is not his uh, sole decision. There's the military, there's a defense minister, there's a war cabinet in which two members of the opposition, both of whom were former IDF, Israel Defense Forces, chiefs of staffs. Um, so he's not alone. So I'm not sure he can pull this off. And, and so while there is a conventional wisdom that he would like to extend the war, the question is, Jake, um, how do we define the day the war ends? Because it's not going to be a, uh, um, you know, a clear-cut uh, uh, day or a clear-cut uh, scenario. The war may change form. It will morph into a low-intensity conflict. Israel will stay in Gaza. It will conduct incursions. It will conduct so-called search-and-destroy operations against the better judgment and wishes of the Biden administration at least in terms, Jake, at least in terms of how they view the so-called day after, the post-war Gaza, which uh, uh, they don't see Netanyahu um, as a partner in, uh, um, in shaping. The other thing that's been remarkable is to see um, the families of the hostages emerge as this potent political force 
uh, and members of the Netanyahu cabinet treating them with hostility. Uh, Ben Gavir and Smotrich and and, and those others um, saying, uh, we lost lost Alon, I think. All right, well, we'll bring him back uh, at another time and talk. No, you didn't. Oh, you didn't. Okay, you're there. Oh, there you are. You're back. Um, (laughs) I'm right right here. Okay, good. Well, we lost your visual for a second there, but what, what do you make of that? I mean, I, 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 I just, it, it's, it's obviously very sensitive, but, and it's not as though, you know, there aren't hostage families in the United States that call out President Biden, because that happens here too. But still, I mean, I got to believe that the, the heart and soul of, these, of the Israeli people are with the families of these hostages. Look, part of the uh, defining narrative of what being Israeli, what being a Zionist, what, you know, this entire story here is about, uh, um, you know, uh, um, taking care of each other. It's about caring, you know, it's a value in Judaism. And and what you see from the government is complete disregard. Um, in fact, it's one of the sources and points of contention between the Biden administration and uh, Mr. Netanyahu where in I, I've heard members of his administration ask out loud, how is it possible that Biden seems to care about the hostages, all hostages, not just those with an American citizenship? How is it that he keeps, that he looks and, and sounds and acts as if he cares more than Mr. Netanyahu? As for his government, absolutely. Look, for the last two weeks, Jake, the issue of the hostages, which should have been the paramount interest, of the government is not even raised publicly, yeah. which is why, per your remark, the families are becoming a potent, and and they could be the source of those. And you said that in your introduction, the source, or at least the uh, the, the, the 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 core of the uh, um, upcoming demonstrations, and they're going to be big. Yeah, they are going to be big. I I don't know anyone who thinks Netanyahu is going to survive this politically uh, after October 7th, his entire pitch to the Israeli well, people I do. was... He, he, you do? He, he does. Oh, he does. He does. <laughs> no, I don't at all. Right. I think I think he should have resigned on day one or week one. But he certainly uh, um, is sure that he's here to fight this epic historic fight. This is the second war of independence. Um, you know, he's uh, um, he's selling a new, a completely new narrative about uh, this war, and he's absolutely sure he can uh, um, uh, withhold uh, and w- withstand, not withhold, withstand this uh, um, um, event. Well, he's the longest serving prime minister in Israeli history, so who knows? Alan Pinkus, thank you so much. Please come back again soon. Another big story this hour the impeachment inquiry vote on the House floor. We're going to talk about that next. Stay with us. Welcome back. We're waiting for the House of Representatives to vote on opening an impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden after months of Republican holdouts saying that they don't see any evidence tying President Biden to financially benefiting from Hunter's business dealings. Now they're getting in line saying, yes, let's open an inquiry, get all the facts on the table. That vote will be the next one up. So we'll continue to monitor the floor of the House of Representatives. Let's bring in our panel uh, to start. Um, And it does look like the Republicans are going to have the votes to launch this uh, impeachment inquiry, even though, I don't know, three months ago, it didn't look like they did. Well, they're putting themselves in a really weird box here, I think, because once you open an impeachment inquiry, then you either have no, you got some, some, right? I mean, you, you either have some subset of Republicans voting not to impeach. Well, great for Joe Biden. Uh, or you have Republicans in these Biden districts who take a vote to impeach. 
not good for them. So really, at the end of the day, the political miscalculation here for House Republicans seems odd to me. Uh, but I understand they're driven by a very uh, vocal uh, faction in their caucus who have wanted to see this happen from day one. I think for Biden, you know, he just has to continue to put this in the bucket of the three P's. It's personal, it's political, and it's pointless. And that's sort of been the message around this. That's the way people have mostly received it. And if Republicans are choosing to make the, to carry the banner forward on this, then I think voters are going to hold them accountable for that. Morgan, I want to get your view on it, but I do want to ask my team to bring the vote back up if we could. Oh, that was a different vote? This is ordering the previous question. Oh, God, the House of Representatives with their ordering, <laughs> yeah. ordering the previous question. Never mind. That's not the vote. That's ordering the previous question, whatever that means. What do you think of this? So I, it's interesting that you're starting to hear some of the rhetoric from uh, more of the moderate members uh, shift in that they're supporting this, but they're saying things like, uh, well, we're going to see where the investigation leads. We're going to, you know, we're going to un try to uncover uh, and turn over every stone, that sort of thing. So they, they're trying to seem that, that they are being prudent investigators and that they are not just chasing after the president for political reasons. Um, it's a it's an odd year to do it, certainly in an election year. And I think if you talk to some of the hard right that have been pushing it, they would say, but you are prosecuting our nominee during an right. election year. So why can't we you know, investigate your president, your nominee during election year as well? Uh, I think when it comes to the House, I mean, listen, most Republicans will say quietly behind the scenes, it's going to be, they feel very confident about the Senate, really, really tough to keep the House. It might be a razor thin majority for whomever gets it. And so I agree with you for the people, for the 10 seats in California and New York uh, that Republicans won to get this small majority, it's going to be really tough to defend some of this. And Republicans and, only have a three-seat right, birth here. Right. Yeah. And I think that, that the argument you were making that the, the hard right is making about, well, you're, you know, you're coming after our nominees, we're coming after yours, that in and of itself is a losing argument, right? Like that is an argument that absolutely appeals to the far right, to the base. But for most moderate voters, for most swing voters, what we've seen time and again is that that retribution argument actually doesn't land with them. I mean, this exactly. is something Republicans have tried to make a centerpiece of their case against Joe Biden since 2019 when he was running. And, and it hasn't gotten traction in part because it feels so political. I will so, say from a staff perspective, I was uh, at the State Department for President Trump uh, during his first impeachment over Ukraine. Um, and it came down while I was at the United Nations with Mike Pompeo. We had just gotten the E3 to agree to uh, move the ball on Iran in some really important ways. And we thought we had big news. And then Nancy Pelosi came out with the press conference. So uh, I will say that it, it is very distracting towards the staff. So you wonder how it will affect the campaign when they're not only having to deal with the impeachment, but they're also having to deal with Hunter Biden's antics uh, every single day like today, for example, when yeah. he's def defying, and so, uh, defying the subpoena. So you, you wonder how the White House staff can be focused on what they're trying to get done from a legislative perspective and multiple wars on multiple fronts at this point that are not going well. There's not a lot of good news for this. Yeah. Team. When you refer to his, his antics, uh, another term for it might be uh, he's punching back. I mean, the, he has a new strategy. He used to kind of just stay out there in California mm -hmm. Uh, and just take the incoming with his attorneys. Now he's hired these new, more aggressive attorneys, Abby Lowell, uh, and he actually went to a place right in front of the Capitol called the Swamp. Uh, that's not meant pejoratively. That's actually where that camera area is called. Uh, and, uh, and he said uh, this. There's no evidence to support the allegations that my father was financially involved in my business because it did not happen. There is no fairness or decency in what these Republicans are doing. 
Um, so I don't know if you guys could hear that because I couldn't in my earpiece. But it said there's no evidence to support the allegation my father was financially involved in my business because it did not happen. There's no fairness or decency in what these Republicans are doing. And I do have to say, whatever you think of Hunter Biden, and there's certainly a lot of people in this town, Democrats and Republicans, that do not think a lot of him, um, there is a certain kind of like cruelty to the campaign against him. Where is Hunter? Where is Hunter? Where is Hunter? Um, don't you think that can back that can um, that might backfire on some Republicans? No, I mean no, he took a, he took money from at least five countries, okay. including the country that Joe Biden names as the number one geopolitical competitor and threat to the United States, the Chinese Communist Party. He did it while his father was vice president. He did it while his father knew he was going to run for president. Um, and you, it, it makes no sense why a son would do that uh, to his father in the first place. But to say that there's no evidence, well, we don't know. We haven't done the investigation yet, mm -hmm. so we'll see what we'll see what happens. But what we do know for sure is that. He did uh, take money from these countries after he said that he didn't. Um, and he did he did engage in influence peddling. There's no way around it. And so what's unseemly is not the Republicans. What's unseemly is his behavior. He's a, pri he's a private citizen. There's been no evidence that Joe Biden in any way interfered inappropriately in his business. I mean, Republicans have been trying to make this case for five years. The House Republicans on the House Oversight Committee have been trying to make this case. They have said time and again, as recently as today, that they did not have evidence that they could put forward that showed any wrongdoing by Joe Biden or any inappropriate connection between Joe Biden and Hunter Biden's business. Yeah. He's a private citizen. He also, where I, where I, well, I disagree with the substance of what you just said, but I also disagree with the assessment that there won't be blowback uh, for this. Remember the debate in 2020, Joe Biden stood on the stage next to Donald Trump. Donald Trump went after Hunter. Joe Biden said, I love my son. I'm proud of my son. He suffered. I think everyone watching this debate has somebody in their life who struggled with addiction. That was one of the most powerful moments of the debate. By making this yeah. personal, by talking about his personal relationship with his son, that was the way people really absorbed the issue and remembered it. So I'm not, I'm not sure I agree that there won't be blowback for Republicans trying to hammer on this again and again and again with no evidence. Yeah, I, think, I mean, I think one of the issues is that um, however unseemly Hunter Biden uh, and his behavior have been, uh, he's out there more aggressively suggesting that this campaign against him is going to lead to a bad place. Like he went on Moby's podcast, right? Mm -hmm. He went on Moby's podcast and he said, they're trying to kill me, mm -hmm. right? And like, maybe you don't buy that. Maybe you think that's him being melodramatic or whatever. But he is somebody who quite obviously has lots of problems um, and, and addiction and the like. And like, I, I don't know. I mean, like, I don't know where this ends. Yeah, I think there's a lot of people, almost everybody, um, who's watching this has probably had somebody who's, someone in their family suffered from addiction, um, somebody who died of fentanyl. It's a massive epidemic in this country. Um, but you, just because you have an addiction problem doesn't excuse your behavior and dealings with foreign countries oh, sure. while your father's vice president. And, and I think that's a difference. Hillary Clinton got flack for way less than this through the Clinton Global Initiative, way yeah. less. She also was the candidate, She, she was the candidate. Anyway, but let's uh, take a quick break. We're going to squeeze in a quick commercial, come right back. Uh, as you see on agreeing to the resolution, Republicans 207, not voting 13, up 208, not voting 13. We're going to watch this vote. Stick with us. And we're back with breaking news. The House of Representatives has just voted to open the impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden. This after months of Republican holdouts saying that they were not willing to do so because they had not seen any credible evidence tying President Biden 
too financially benefiting from Hunter's business dealings. Now they all appear willing to sign on to at least opening the impeachment inquiry. You see right there, uh, it's 233. Oh, it's a different vote. I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, MJ Lee's at the White House. MJ, what is the mood around the White House uh, regarding this impeachment inquiry? Well, Jake, uh, as for these impeachment uh, inquiry efforts, the White House continues to maintain that this is a political stunt. Uh, generally, that's sort of been their umbrella response to many things remotely uh, related to the president's son. Uh, what is interesting is sort of seeing the White House sort of trying to balance uh, defending Hunter Biden sort of generally, including the, the comments that we saw earlier today. Uh, that were kind of uh, remarkable as the president's son was trying to separate out his own troubles uh, from his uh, from his father and his father's conduct, uh, but also just trying to not really get into the space of sort of publicly advising the president's son on how he should handle uh, some of these legal issues that he's confronting, uh, including on Capitol Hill with these uh, inquiries. Uh, the White House press secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, today was asked multiple times uh, how the the president sees the issue of an individual, including the president's son, defying a congressional subpoena. Uh, she wouldn't comment on that. Uh, but the president has actually weighed in on this precise issue back in 2021. Uh, he was asked about uh, people uh, defying subpoenas related to the January 6th uh, investigation. And he said those people should be prosecuted uh, by the DOJ. So this kind of question comes up uh, in the context of previous comments that the president has made and the White House is sort of forced to say uh, no comment selectively. Uh, obviously, these are two very different sets of circumstances, and there's just no ignoring the fact that we are talking about the president's son here. And uh, publicly, the White House continues to also say uh, the president, the first lady, they remain very proud of their son, very proud of his recovery and everything that has gone into uh, the president's son trying to better his life, basically, uh, even as these Republican efforts continue to uh, try to uh, get him in uh, legal trouble, to try to bring to life and connect the dots, basically, and say that uh, any actions that have uh, come from the president's son, that there's a connection there to the president himself. But MJ, we know that uh, the president did know that Hunter was going to defy the congressional subpoena and that he was going to do that stunt this morning, right? The, the, the president was aware of that? Well, what the White House uh, said was that he knew what Hunter Biden would say on Capitol Hill today, though, uh, you know, the White House press secretary was asked, uh, was he involved in actually helping to draft what Hunter Biden would say? Uh, they wouldn't comment on that. Uh, again, another situation where uh, they're shedding a little bit of light on what the president knew, but asked for more specifics. They're just not getting into it. All right. I'm Jay Lee at the White House. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. The big news. The House of Representatives has voted to formalize an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. More reaction to this major move coming up next in the Situation Room with Wolf Blitzer. Stay with us. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.